that a little bit more detail over the next little while. And so we're going to come before the Lord in prayer asking that he would work through his word and we can come with a confidence knowing that he can, he does and he will. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are not a God who is distant, that you didn't just create and then remain separate from all of your creation. You desired to be known, desired to make yourself known. We thank you that you were a gracious, merciful God who had a plan to redeem a people who had turned their backs on you. We thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices, but you have given us your word knowing that we, we need to know you. We need to know your character, your will, uh, your plans and purposes for our lives. We thank you that as we, everywhere we look to your scriptures, all of it you tell us is for our benefit. It is profitable. And so, Lord, we come with an expectation that our time together this morning will be profitable that it will be transformative as we see something more of your heart for us and that you form something more in us, in our heart for you. And so, Lord, pray that you would have your will be done through our time together looking at your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I often get asked to do is when people know that I was ministering in another church down in Victoria, people say, What's the difference between the two churches you've pastored? Now, usually the most common response I give I tends to be a demographic answer. I usually answer and say that when I was in Victoria, I was considered to be the young guy in the congregation. But then when I came up to Eastgate, I was in the higher end of the demographic in terms of age. So for those who are here this morning who were born before 1975, thanks for being here. Because there have been some Sundays when I've been the oldest bloke in the building. And I often forget. You know how you get a year older each age? I'm not the sort of person who forgets what age I actually am, but you forget that in the process you're getting older, which means that when people finish high school, they will, to your eyes, they'll look younger than they used to because everybody's getting older. But there's some things about ageing that... I don't really look forward to. I don't care if I go bald. Actually, I've done pretty good in that department. Dad's doing pretty good in that department, so that one's probably okay. I don't care if my eyesight goes a little bit dodgy. It's already slightly down that trajectory. I don't care if hair start growing out of places they've never grown out of before. Although I do remember the very first time my hairdresser started trimming eyebrow hairs. I was a little bit offended. And now my kids think it's funny to say, you've got one, can I pull it out? But the thing that I really don't want to happen is memory loss. You know, when I'm tired, I'm already like it already when I'm tired. I have little moments where we see little glimpses of it. But kind of the sort of memory loss where you don't remember significant events in your own life or don't remember how to do things that you used to normally be able to regularly do. Now we've got the good old expression, you live and learn. What that expression means is that 
over time of your life, you have experiences and from going through those experiences, you learn things and as a result of the things which you learnt, it shapes and changes the way in which you do things in the future. Now, I remember the first time that I learnt this particular feature of a car. If you look at your fuel gauge, if you've never noticed this before, there is a little arrow on it which tells you, if you didn't know this, so I've just opened your eyes to something that's been right in front of your face for the rest of your life, tells you which side the fuel hole is. There's got to be a word for that, other than hole. Where you fill it up. So you can look down on any given car and you know where it is. So you're driving into a survey, so if you've got a rental car, you don't need to do that thing where you turn up and you, you park next to a fuel thing, go, oh, it's on the opposite side of mine, get back out and drive it round the other side. Once you've seen that, if you hadn't seen it before, you think, how on earth did I ever miss that? That's, that's on every single fuel gauge in every single car and you'd never picked up on it. But once you have seen it, you never again will you go back and make the old mistake. You've seen it, you've learnt it, you've remembered it and you've instantly changed forever. Now, I wish I could say that every lesson that I have learnt in life, that I so instantly took it on board, changed forever, never to go back to the old ways. Unfortunately, we all know that's not the truth for me and and if you don't realise it, it's not the truth for you either. I think if we're honest, every single one of us would probably wish that we were far quicker to learn and adapt to the things that we've learned from our own failures and own mistakes. I take a bit of comfort when we look at a passage like this, that when we see Jesus' own disciples were slow to learn. In this passage that we've just had read, Jesus' disciples demonstrate their spiritual amnesia. And it reminds us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So every single thing that we learn once about him, we know for certain will be true of him for all time. And once we truly take hold of those things we learn about him and put them into action, it will save us a whole lot of pain and worry. So we'll work our way through Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at forgetfulness leads to failure. Forgetfulness creating hard hearts. Going viral. And when the redeemed remember. But firstly, forgetfulness leads to failure. Verses 1 to 10. When you heard the reading, you could have been easily made the mistake of thinking, have we already looked at that bit where Jesus fed lots of people? Because back in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. You know, they're out in a desolate place, the disciples come and say, Jesus... It's not good, we should send them home before it gets dark so they can get something to eat. And then he says, you you feed them. That fun line he gave them that. And then from five loaves and two fish, fed 5,000 men plus whatever women and children there, potentially 10,000 people. 
But what we see in the feeding of the 4,000 that we've seen in Mark chapter 8, there is so much in common that some people think this must be retelling the same event again. I mean, look at the similarities when you put them side by side. In both of them, it happens in a desolate place. In both of them, we see a description that Jesus has compassion on the crowd. In both accounts, Jesus says, how many loaves have you got? Both cases, the crowds, they get them seated. Jesus gives thanks, gets the disciples to distribute the food. The people eat and they're satisfied. Leftovers get collected up, which is incidentally even more than what they had to begin with. Then the disciples leave on the boat. Every single one of those minor details correlates between the 5,000 and the 4,000. So with all of that agreement in content, you can see why some people might think, maybe it's the same thing. But one thing which leads some scholars to lean this way, which I don't, and I don't think anyone should, is they just can't get past the fact that if the disciples had witnessed with their own eyes Jesus multiplying the bread and the fishes for the 5,000 plus, maybe up to 10,000 people, that surely when they're faced with the same scenario again, they wouldn't be so perplexed as to what to do about it. They just think there's no way the disciples would, would forget about that previous event and not just think, Jesus, why don't you just do what you did last time instead of saying, where are we going to find food for these people? As we read in verses 3 and 4, it says, If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a long way. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in, in a desert place? How, how could they ask that question having seen him feed the 5,000? It would be very easy to get to this passage and say, How thick are Jesus' disciples? How dumb are they to say, oh, what do we do? How could we feed this many people? But it is precisely because of the similarities between the two events that some of the key teaching points are actually able to be communicated. There are two separate events with much in common, but there's also some significant differences that separate them. In chapter 6, it's 5,000 men plus others, so maybe up to 10,000, whereas the number in, in chapter 8 is, says 4,000 people. So that's the totality number. The crowds in chapter 6 are likely a Jewish crowd and the, the crowds in chapter 8 are likely a Gentile crowd. Now it says, it says in the beginning of this thing, at those days, in the previous context was they were there amongst the Decapolis, Mark chapter 6, you've got five loaves, two fish. Chapter 8, seven loaves, a few small fish. The word translated there may even mean something like sardines. In chapter 6, the disciples are the ones who raise the need for food. In chapter 8, it's Jesus who raises the need for food. In chapter 6, Jesus said a blessing, looking to heaven, and said a blessing very similar to the way, traditionally the way in which a Jewish audience would do it. And then in chapter 8, he merely used the everyday term to give thanks, the way a Gentile or a Christian sort of way would go about doing things. 
There's 12 baskets left over in chapter 6 and 7 in chapter 8. There are significant details different. But not only that, and if nothing else sorts it more than anything else, Jesus says they are different events. When you get to verses 18 to 20, he asks his disciples, when I break the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets did you take up? And when for the seven, for the 4,000, how many baskets did you take up? So from Jesus' own words, they are two separate events. But still, part of us would think, why would Jesus do two things so similar? There's certainly an, an uncertainty that the disciples don't really understand what's going on. But I think one of the central messages that is in there is that we see both of them. People are hungry, they have a need. Jesus had compassion on them, both the Jewish crowd and the Gentile crowd. Jesus fed them and they were satisfied. Jesus was the one who satisfies completely both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now the Jews would have naturally expected that Jesus would do that, particularly if he was Jewish lineage. They may even see the connection back to the way Moses through God through Moses provided the manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. But the prevailing Jewish culture at the time, they had contempt for, for the Gentiles. They didn't think they were deserving of any of, of God's blessings. But the prevailing values of any given culture are worth nothing. What counts is what does God think of them. When we see these two feeding side by side, we see that Jesus had compassion for the Jews, he satisfied the Jews. Jesus had compassion for the Gentiles, those that that people looked down upon, and he satisfied them as well to the max. Also provides us with a very vivid expression what the Syrophoenician lady had previously said in chapter 7 verse 28 when she said, even the dogs, even the Gentiles eat the crumbs from under the children's table. She understood that God's blessings go beyond the children of national Israel. So whoever we might perceive to be our enemies, we can be reminded that God's compassion is not withheld from those that we might think are our enemies. Rather, we should desire, we should pray that God would show them compassion, that God would feed them with the true and living bread of Jesus Christ, that they would be satisfied, they would come to know the blessings of being part of his family. When the disciples were faced with the same dilemma as they'd been with before. They were helpless. They said, where on earth are we going to get food to feed all of these people? Not because the help wasn't available, but because they had failed to trust in what they had seen and learnt of Jesus in the experience of the 5,000. And I guarantee any situation in our life that comes up 
If we think about how can I fix this, we'll be without hope. We'll be helpless. If we think it's our job to take upon ourselves that we are the solution to everything that comes our way in life, we'll be helpless. But when we choose to rest in what we know of Jesus, who he, who he is, what he's done, then we can come before any situation with a confidence and a joy. Not because we know how, but because we know who. The one who is sovereign over all things. The one who can be trusted with all things. Forgetfulness, failing to acknowledge what we know to be true of our God, will always lead to failure. But forgetfulness can also lead to hard hearts, verses 11 to 13. As Jesus and the disciples head to the other side of the sea, we're back now again into Jewish territory. It's an interesting contrast. You go from a time where the Gentile audience are really flocking to Jesus, enjoying him. When he gets back into Jewish territory, the first thing he encounters is opposition, specifically from the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, there's a lot of background stuff to understanding that one verse. I mean, it's pretty clear that they are opposed to him, they were wanting to argue with him, but some of the language might not be as clear to the eye as what is actually being communicated. You could think, well, maybe the Pharisees, they're just like everyone else. They just want another miracle. They just want to see one with their own eyes to test whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. But that's not what they're asking. That's not what they're seeking. What they're asking for is a sign from heaven. They're saying, give us a sign that comes from God himself that confirms that you and your ministry is within his plan and his will. There's a Jewish commentary, uh, one of the midrashes on Deuteronomy 18, that says this, possibly shaping some of their thoughts at the time and asking this request of Jesus. It says, If a prophet begins to prophesy, listen to him. If he does a sign and a miracle, but if he does not do them, do not hear him. So maybe, maybe that mindset's behind their question. We've already seen in previous weeks that the, the Pharisees and the scribes were far more committed to some of the, the tradition than they were actually the commands of God. So maybe this is a tradition that they were leaning towards. But if that was their motive, there's a clearer statement than what God has actually said. And it concerns me greatly when Someone says about any ministry, that must be God. That must be God's will because look at the miraculous signs that go alongside with it. If these signs weren't there, then it, it couldn't be God. If you think about what God has actually said, Deuteronomy 13, he says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you come to pass, And if he says, let us go after other gods which we have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. 
For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul. The scriptures which God had given them says, yeah, there will be people who come along, they do signs. That does not guarantee that what they're doing is from God. He said, some people might do a sign, it might come to pass, and they might say, let's go follow other gods. Signs may confirm that something is from God, but not if the message is completely opposite. But the request of the Pharisees doesn't seem to be a genuine desire to find out, is Jesus who he says he is? Where it says they came to test him is not language where you use to determine whether or not Jesus is legit. It's not something to, in the hope of finding a positive answer, it's a term that's used to expecting to find a negative answer. The only other times in Mark that when this language, this particular word is used to test someone is of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satanist to, Satan to test him and by the opposition and resistance of the Pharisees on three occasions. It was, a, it was intended to have a negative outcome to trip them up or to discredit Now the Pharisees would have seen and heard already a lot of Jesus' signs and miracles. It's not that they hadn't seen something. They had hard hearts and they were just looking for a way to trip him up, to discredit him, to write them off for the hard-hearted rejection of him they already had. And we see them constantly trying to find a reason to justify why they should reject him. But Jesus was saddened by their hardened hearts. It says, he groaned deeply in his spirit. It's kind of like the same language of the Israelites groaning against Moses. He was just so saddened by the fact that these people, they study the scriptures all day, all long, but their hearts are so hard. Straight back on the boat, back over to the other side. I find verse 14 amusing. Just a little side note. Oh, and they forgot to take bread. They only had one loaf. Even the fact that Mark mentions it suggests that from the disciples' perspective, this was something to worry about. Oh no, we've gone onto a boat, there's no shops on the boat, we've got no bread. Fred. Despite having seen Jesus multiply bread for 5,000 plus people, 4,000, their first thought when they get on the, bre- on the boat is, ah, we forgot to get bread. Now Jesus has just left from where he was with sadness because of the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. He wants to take this time to spend amongst his disciples to warn them against the dangers of hard-heartedness. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now people have a variety of different understandings of what's he referring to, this leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Because when you look at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 16, he speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he says it's their teaching. Luke chapter 12, he speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees being their hypocrisy. But in Mark here he speaks of the leaven of 
the Pharisees and of Herod. And people think, what on earth do the Pharisees and Herod have in common? They don't really have much in common at all. But there was one thing that they did have in common that united them. That was they were united in their hard-hearted opposition and rejection of Jesus. He says, beware. This could happen to you. Don't become hard in your heart towards me. Now, leaven is used in a number of ways throughout the scriptures. Majority of the time with some sort of a negative context, speaking of sin and its effect on those around. But it's also used in a positive context, Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 13, when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like leaven. It grows, it it expands, it affects everything around it. So whether it's being used in a positive context or a negative context, every time the Bible uses the imagery of leaven, it's to use to speak of something that has the ability to impact the things which are surrounding it, either for good or for negative reasons. And so Jesus is warning the disciples, when you are surrounded by hard-hearted people, don't let that rub off onto you. Don't let your hearts go in line with them. But funnily enough, when they hear Jesus speak of leaven, the first thing they think of again, oh, bread. We've got no bread. He said, leaven's in bread. We've got none of it. And they think, what are we going to do? Now, apart from the fact that them asking that question means they've just completely not heard a single word that Jesus has just said to them, but they're forgetting they are with the one they've seen twice do the unimaginable taking a small amount of bread and feeding thousands of people. Jesus' point was to to remind and warn them about hard-heartedness and all they can think about, we've got no bread. When I say they've forgotten, if you ask them, Did you see Jesus feed the 5,000, the 4,000? Of course they did. They'd remember that. They hadn't forgotten the event. They knew the information, but they didn't have the understanding. They knew all the stuff about what Jesus had done, but they hadn't lived trusting in the reality of who he had revealed himself to be. And Jesus even asked them in verse 17, Are your hearts hardened? If both hard-heartedness and the kingdom of God can be described as leaven, it means the presence of either of those things, hard-heartedness, the kingdom of God, have the ability to influence and impact the surroundings wherever it goes. As Christians, our desire should be that the kingdom of God goes, it spreads, goes viral. That wherever we go, the message of the kingdom would go with us. That people would be one for the kingdom as the people of the kingdom go out into the world. But I believe Jesus is also warning us, as he did the disciples, be careful that when you find yourself surrounded by a hard-hearted people who are opposed and resistant to Jesus, that that doesn't rub off onto you. Be careful that even in your own life experience 
the way in which you respond to the circumstances of life that come your way, don't show a failure to remember who your Saviour is, what he has done, what he has promised. Because how you react in those things will either encourage others to trust him deeply, reminding him of who we have, what he has done, or a hardened heart that refuses to remember and apply who Jesus is and what he has done will actually affect others around you and lead them to do the same. In everything that comes your way, you have the ability in your response to trust Jesus and lead others to trust him more deeply or a wrong response can actually lead to you impacting and leading others away from him, from trusting him less. We want the kingdom of God and his power and the satisfaction that he alone brings to go viral. So when the redeemed remember, it's so easy to look at this passage and just shake your head at the disciples and say, oh, you thickies. You just didn't get it. You sent 5,000, 4,000, we've got no bread. Oh, what do we do? We think, how slow could they possibly be? Now, you and I might not have experienced a time when Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 or 4,000 people around us. But is it possible that we are prone to forget things that we know he has done? either things he has done in our own personal life experience or things that we have read and know to be true of his experience with mankind as we read them in the scriptures. When life throws us a curveball, do we remember the works of a God and does that give us a confidence and assurance to press deeply into him? Or do we panic? As Christians, we believe and are convinced everything we read in the scriptures is 100% true. So it doesn't have to be just our lived experience that we, we learn from and look back to. We can look at the lived experience of those who have gone before us and how God has dealt bountifully with them. We see the character of God towards his people in the scriptures, the same yesterday, today and forever because we've seen the dangers when we forget to remember and apply who Christ is and what he has done we will feel hopeless and helpless every single time so look at life from a perspective of how can I be the solution how can I fix this it's just going to lead to frustration hurt and failure but to remember and call upon and place our faith and stand upon the works and revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, not my problem. I bring it to him. It's in good hands. I love the words of Psalm 77. When he's clearly, the psalmist is going through a difficult time and he's asking some hard questions. He starts by saying, Has the steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No, that's how it feels to him in that circumstances in which he found himself in. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. 
I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might amongst the peoples. He says, yeah, life's hard. Sometimes our life circumstances look like he's aloof, he's distant, or things aren't happening in the time frame that we would like. How does the psalmist respond? How do we respond? Yet I will remember the Lord. I'll remember his mighty deeds. I'll remember his unchanging character and his love and compassion towards me. We don't need to know how he's going to work in the circumstances. We simply remember him, remember what he's done in the past. When you remember what the God of the past and what he has done, you have confidence for the now and for the future. That you belong to the one who has all power, all authority, the one who says, I will be with you to the end of the age and is the same yesterday, today and forever. So if you are in Christ, you are in good hands. No matter how difficult today's circumstances might be for you, you are in good hands. You can trust him. You can trust him that his compassion has not shut up. You can trust that he is the one who provides and blesses for his people. And as you trust in him, and as you choose to stand in confidence upon him, his character and what the gospel has achieved for you, that you might lead and inspire others to do the same. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are unchanging. Our circumstances change all over the place. We have good days, we have hard days. We have days when we feel like everything's going the way it should. We have some days when it just looks like total chaos. We have days when we feel like things are going smoothly. We have days when we feel like it would seem impossible that anything good could come out of it. Lord, we thank you for the life experiences that you have given us. But we thank you too for the written record of the way in which you have dealt with your people throughout the centuries. Lord, may we lean on you and your promises. May we lean on the assurance of your past dealings with people knowing that you are unchanging. Lord, we'll never want to come to you and dictate a timeline or a particular outcome. But because of your your beautiful, perfect, revealed, holy character, we trust you today with whatever it is that we're going through. Lord, we want to be a people who encourage and, and lead others to trust in you. Forgive us from times when we have been forgetful, when we have remembered and maybe even praised and given you thanks for the way in which you've worked in a particular situation and find ourselves in a similar thing later on and then we we go back to panic rather than recalling and standing upon your bountiful goodness. Thank you that in Christ you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
And we pray that even in the biggest battles, things that we see and experience in life, uh, that we might trust in you. We might see your deliverance and your good gifts to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those who like to read in advance, we're looking at chapter 8, 22 through to 9, 1 next week. Now Alon's going to come up and lead us in a time around the Lord's table.